3: Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. War crimes have taken place in Ukraine, and those who are responsible should be exposed.
2: We're going to see quite a few Trump-backed candidates go up against incumbent Democrats.
3: Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top name.
4: of GOP primary ads are on immigration. It is one of the key midterm issues. A
2: president's budget is not something that anybody expects to be passed. It's really a messaging document that lays out the president's priorities.
3: Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio
5: is struggling to secure $10 billion of funding that the White House says is needed to battle the next stage of the COVID pandemic. Lawmakers are now saying that the bill's going nowhere after Republicans demanded a vote on an immigration provision. We're going to chat about this more with healthcare policy analyst Chris Meekins, who's going to get into what it means if no more COVID funding is coming. And we're going to be speaking with Congressman Derek Kilmer, a Washington Democrat who chairs a group of lawmakers trying to fix Congress. That's an easy job right there. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my Bloomberg government co-host, Jack Fitzpatrick. Well, Jack, at the start of the week, there was so much confidence that lawmakers were going to get this COVID funding bill done, this $10 billion bipartisan package. And then Republicans decided that they were going to throw immigration into the mix.
6: Yeah, uh, we had a deal. We had a a bipartisan deal. It's not even entirely Republicans. It it is Republicans and potentially a few Democrats who are saying this uh, nominally immigration issue, they call it Title 42, is the policy that the CDC actually said it was a pandemic guideline uh, that allows them to much more quickly send people back uh, if they come at the border. Migrants, asylum seekers, for pandemic purposes. Uh, There was a, a pushback to President biden's decision to end that policy it is led by republicans there may be some senators there certainly was uh, some pushback from mark kelly of arizona john tester of montana put out a statement saying he's very concerned about the lack of a plan there but republicans now are saying we want an amendment on this covid funding bill to basically to block or somehow address uh, this biden decision to end that policy uh, and, and they they can't figure it out. There's no agreement on whether there will be an amendment. Uh, and the latest, you know, our colleague Zach Cohen just uh, caught up a little bit ago with John Thune, who's the Republican Whip in the Senate, who said it, it doesn't look like they can get a deal this week. They're going on a two-week recess, of yep. course. So it's it's going to be a matter of weeks before they can actually strike a deal on this $10 billion they need yeah. for therapeutics and other measures on COVID.
5: And let's be clear, this is a lot of election politics going on right here. Republicans know that immigration is an issue that motivates their base. They are ready to use that issue in the upcoming midterms. And as you pointed out, Jack, I mean, this is something, if you look at the list of Democrats who have come out with concerns about removing this ban that has uh, limited migrants crossing the southern border, it's a lot of lawmakers who are facing really tough elections this November. Uh, also want to just kind of get into a little bit more about why this funding is so necessary. Uh, for that, we're going to go uh, to a sound that we have, from earlier today, when Dr. Anthony Fauci talked to our own David Weston on Bloomberg's balance of power about exactly what this $10 billion in funding would do.
7: Well, David, that's absolutely critical that we get that money um, for a number of reasons. So you could work from the bottom up. You know, the $5 billion was taken out of the 15, and that $5 billion was for international COVID to get vaccines to people in the developed world and to be able to get those vaccines into vaccinations into people's arms. That is important because if we don't do that and you have a lot of viral dynamics in other parts of the world, that leads to the likelihood that you're gonna see another variant. That's the first thing. The second thing, we in the next few months will run out of tests, run out of monoclonal antibody run out of antiviral drugs as well as the important work that needs to be done to do studies to determine what the best booster should be. As I mentioned a moment ago, should it be a combination of a a, a hybrid of different boosts? Should it be an Omicron boost? Should it be a boost of another variant like beta? We don't know that and we can't do those studies, David, unless we get the money because we in fact will run out in a very reasonably short period of time.
5: None of that sounds particularly good. Uh, but to break it down a little bit more, joining us now is Chris Meegans. He's the healthcare care policy analyst and managing director at Raymond James. Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We obviously just heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, but I wanted to see if you could take it back for a minute. This next variant that we're facing, the Omicron BA2, it's more contagious than BA1. What does that actually mean for what the next few months are going to look like in the U.S.?
8: Yeah, the reality is we're seeing, you know, numbers largely speaking at about a little
5: under 30,000
8: cases a day of what's officially reported. But with so many at-home tests that exist, what we know is there's a decent number of folks that are being infected that never make their way into the numbers. So we're going to see an uptick in cases, some of which will be reported good number of which probably will not be reported in the official numbers. And so that's, and it's gonna continue to run its course till we get to the summer, and we're gonna have these continued new variants go on. It's important to continue to vaccinate the world as new variants can come in those other places, as Dr. Fauci said, but it's also important to acknowledge that the uh, American public, largely speaking, for better or worse, is over COVID at this point, which is why members of Congress don't feel the pressure Uh, to allocate $10 billion uh, when they were more than happy to allocate trillions of dollars to help fight this and respond to it throughout
6: this pandemic. Well, yeah, Chris, it is surprising to see them struggle so much on a $10 billion bill that's offset in cost now after such an aggressive fiscal response. Uh, But clearly, it looks like they're going to have to wait a few more weeks. This is falling apart this week. There's no deal. They're going to go on a two-week recess after this. What is the significance? Can they afford to wait another few weeks when it comes to the therapeutic supply and everything else they want to accomplish
8: in this bill? Yeah. So officially the administration will say, no, they can't. The reality is they've got billions of dollars they can make available if they really wanted to move some money around and with additional existing flexibilities they have, but they've staked this position claiming they have no money. And so they're going to have to continue to act as though they have no money going forward. The reality is we're not going to continue in a world in which forever the government is buying all of the vaccine and paying for administration of vaccine and paying for treatments. That's not what happens for any other drug in the United States at this point. So at some point, we're going to transition. I believe it's the second half of this year after they get, you know, some transition money in this 10 billion being a part of that, where it's going to go through the normal insurer process, right? Just like insurers, you know, do the vaccines for kids and cover those. And just like insurers cover... Uh, The annual seasonal influenza vaccine and Medicare, Medicaid does and TRICARE, VA, you know, this is going to get to a normal drug process later in the year. So I think the administration uh, needs this money and wants this money to kind of bridge that gap. But the reality is we have to accept that that's where we're headed.
6: So, Chris, I'm I'm interested in the point you just made on the normal insurer process because there was the program that they just had to stop, uh, in which the government pays back the healthcare provider f- uh, for vaccines for people who don't have insurance. Do you see this as sort of step one of just getting rid of that program, or do you think the future is there?
8: Well, the reality is, if you're uninsured in the United States, you have to pay for your care, and there are a lot of programs uh, that exist to help limit the number of uninsured in the United States. We've seen, and you're a congressional reporter, so you know this, we're continuing to have a fight over whether they're going to extend the expanded Affordable Care Act subsidies, which have resulted in a few million people getting coverage, didn't have it before. You still have, depending on when the public health emergency ends, Medicaid redeterminations, where you have 15 million additional low-income Americans were able to get coverage elsewhere. So, The traditional process is if you are uninsured in the United States, you have to pay out of pocket um, or hospitals have to eat that as part of bad debt. And then there's a bad debt payment for Medicare. So there's a normal process that exists for care for individuals, uninsured and insured. And COVID has been this special situation for the last two years, justifiably so, um, because it is a pandemic. But we're going to transition away from that. And I think we're slowly starting to see the administration do that and Congress is pushing uh, to move maybe a little more quickly.
5: You know, Chris, there's nothing that Congress loves more than a good, solid deadline to actually get their work (laughs) done by. I'm wondering, as for this bill, for this funding, is it going to get to a point where you think where all these lawmakers are going to realize what the real world impacts of not having this money is and it's going to get passed? Or is there a chance that, that we're not going to see any more COVID funding coming from Congress because of delays like this one?
8: Yeah, I think you know Congress missed its opportunity when you saw House Democrats balk at only having to offset part of this as part of the omnibus spending bill when it was $15 billion. um, Balk at that and it get yanked out of the omnibus. Your point of must pass bills, great opportunities. They really gave more leverage to Republicans. And now Republicans said, fine, we'll agree to 10. Instead of 15, you have to fully offset it. And now the administration, in what I can only call a boneheaded, staff move, decided to make the Title 42 change before they had the COVID money. If they had just waited two weeks, we would have it passed by Easter, and this would not have been an issue. But, you know, self-inflicted mistakes are now making this more complicated than it needs to be. I think we see this get done by Memorial Day, but the longer this gets delayed, then delays reconciliation and a wide range of other priorities uh, Democrats and Congress have.
5: Chris, I did want to ask you very quickly, we've only uh, got a couple seconds left, uh, but what about this international aid? How important is the Congress past that? It, it got cut from the $10 billion bill, uh, but it was there initially.
8: Yeah, I think they need it. I think, you know, the original bill of $5 billion is probably appropriate to try to get vaccines to more low-income countries right now, um, and they should do that. You just have to find a way to offset it, and there's plenty of unspent money out there. Uh, Both sides decided they're willing to use it uh, to get there done. Um, Fauci's right, you're going to see more variants globally and we need to get folks vaccinated to decrease the number of hospitalizations and deaths from this virus.
5: Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of discussion on either side about how important it is that, you know, the U.S. is never fully protected until the global uh, population is protected because of vaccines. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining us. That was Chris Meekins, healthcare policy analyst and managing director at Raymond James. Up next, we assemble the panel and take a look at both COVID funding, immigration and lawmakers grilling oil executives today on gas prices. I'm Emily Wilkins with Jack Fitzpatrick, this is Bloomberg.
0: Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.
3: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
6: Senate efforts to pass a $10 billion COVID relief bill by the end of the week have faltered amid a debate over the so-called Title 42 restriction on migrants and asylum seekers at the border. You're going to hear about Title 42 quite a bit in the news uh, for the foreseeable future. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, co-hosting today with my Bloomberg government colleague Emily Wilkins. Uh, We are in for Joe while he's out for the week. We're going to bring in our panel, all-star panel of Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie sheehan and Rick Davis. Guys today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki blamed Republicans for insisting on an immigration amendment on a public health funding bill. Here's what she had to say. Unfortunately, even after Senate leadership agreed upon a, pa- a pared-down bipartisan bill, Senate Republicans decided to move the goalposts yet again and force amendment votes on something completely independent of our COVID response needs. And at this point, we ha- the question we have is whether Republicans are acting in good faith to provide the resources we need to save American lives, or if they are just playing politics. The virus is not waiting for Republicans in Congress to get their act together. Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, the Senate Minority Leader, laid out what Republicans in the Senate need to see in order to support this COVID funding bill.
1: I think there'll have to be an amendment on Title 42 in order to move the bill. Uh, There are several other amendments that we're going to want to offer. And so we'll need to enter into some kind of uh, agreement to process these amendments in order to go forward with the bill.
6: Well, Chris Meekins, who was just on with us uh, from Raymond James and previously an employee at uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, said, boy, that's a real mistake by the Biden administration on timing, rescinding Title 42 right before, right as they were announcing a deal uh, on this COVID funding bill. Jeannie Shianzano, Rick Davis, I got to get your thoughts on this. Jeannie, did the Biden administration make a a mistake just in terms of timing and managing uh, what they need to do on COVID?
4: You know, they did. They will say that it was, of course, it's a CDC public health decision. And they came into this pandemic into office saying they would follow the science. The CDC has said that there's no good health reason to keep this in place. So they are saying it's a health decision, you know, and we have to look at the reality. The Biden administration is also being pushed by immigration uh, advocates who are saying that there's no reason that Title 42 should be in place. But of course, it's a political misstep. When you don't have a plan in place before you do this, because they've left their own very vulnerable Democrats in purple districts like Mark Kelly and so many of the others you mentioned, very vulnerable to attacks from Republicans in a very difficult midterm season.
5: So obviously politics always weighs in here, always got to think about about the political angle. But I'm wondering, just sort of going back to the bill and what it is, I mean, they did get bipartisan support on this. Is there some sort of way, Rick Davis, that, that you can see this legislation eventually passing Congress and then working something out on this immigration provision?
1: Yeah, this is certainly not the first time something like this has happened. And typically... <clears throat> Uh, the majority calls the cards and says, okay, fine, we'll give you three amendments. You know, we're going to put a time behind it. We're going to start voting tonight. And, um, and, and, and there you go. And, and the reality is the reason they don't want to do it is because they actually have the votes to pass an amendment on Title 42 because they have a bunch of Democrats who don't like it either. And that's the last narrative they want. So uh, it's the intransigence of the leadership who doesn't want to just open it up and give a vote. Uh, that is how the Senate is supposed to work, right? You know, if you can't get a total agreement, just vote up, on, up or down on the amendments and move on. And whatever passes, passes. So um, Schumer's got a test of his leadership coming up now, and he's not got really great options. But if he wants to pass a bill, and he can pass a bill, let him vote on the amendment. And if the amendment passes, the bill passes.
6: Right. Well, the, the issue there is Democrats may not have the votes to vote this amendment down and Democratic leadership doesn't want it on there. Uh, speaking of issues that have caused people to yell at each other on Capitol Hill, oil and gas executives testified at a House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing today where they took a lot of heat from Democrats for uh, gas prices, oil prices more broadly. Chevron CEO Mike Wirth uh, pointed out he can't just flip a switch. He, he said he's not in charge of your gas prices.
9: We do not control the market price of crude oil or natural gas, nor of refined products like gasoline and diesel fuel. And we have no tolerance for price gouging.
6: Jeannie, I noticed uh, in the Senate, Budget Committee Chairman uh, Bernie Sanders, known for his, his presidential campaigns and, and hitting on oil and gas, uh, said that he's also going to be having some hearings in that committee on uh, on inflation, on what he describes as greed of corporate America. Are these getting us anywhere? Is this getting at policy, or have we just entered fully into the campaign mode?
4: We are in full-blown campaign mode. You said the right word. It is all about blame, Democrats are blaming the CEOs. Republicans are blaming the Biden administration's energy policies. You had Jen Psaki out today telling the CEOs and and the oil companies don't sit on your profits, and they want to keep going back to these unused permits, which is not really a fair uh, criticism for a variety of reasons. So you've got a whole lot of finger pointing, and of course you've got frustrated Americans at the pump paying enormous prices, which is why you've got these House Dems calling these CEOs CEOs in. They can can't do much except yell at them and blame them and try to put the onus on them as opposed to on themselves.
6: Right. For what it's worth, I I thought it was kind of funny. Bill Johnson, the Republican from Ohio, also yelled at them for airing TV ads. The oil and gas companies airing TV ads uh, talking about their clean energy and, in his words, liberal values. So maybe some bipartisan frustration with them. Coming up, we're going to talk to Congressman Derek Kilmer. He's on Appropriations and leads the New Democrat Coalition. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.
3: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew.
5: This is Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. We are in for Joe Matthew this week. Well, in just a minute, we're going to be speaking with Congressman Derek Kilmer. He's a member of the powerful House Appropriations Committee and the head of another panel that's looking to modernize and update Congress. Uh, He's also a noted Star Wars fan. Not sure how that's going to factor into the interview, but figured I'd throw it out there. Well, joining us now is Congressman Derek Kilmer, a Democratic lawmaker from the state of Washington. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I wanted to start off by asking a little bit about what Democrats need to do going forward. It is 216 days until the midterms. And while we don't know what happens this November, we know that Democrats have control of the House at least until then. What does your party need to do in the next 216 days?
9: Well, it's good to be with you, Emily. I I think the agenda for the rest of the year needs to focus on a a few big pieces. One, passing a bipartisan innovation bill. That's important in terms of securing our supply chains. All of us are concerned about rising costs and the impacts that those costs have on our constituents. And so an innovation bill that reduces costs and that creates jobs here in our country, I think, is a priority for us. On top of that, I think there's an opportunity to pass a budget reconciliation bill that will also lower costs, the cost of healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs, and that will make important progress in tackling the climate crisis. Um, You also heard at the end of the president's um, State of the Union, him speak about, uh, uh, the president speak about a unity agenda on key issues like opioids, on, on mental health, on curing cancer, on helping our veterans. The reality is Democrats and Republicans I have a lot of common ground on those issues, and I I think we should answer the president's call by sending bills on those issues to his desk.
5: Congressman, I, I have to hone in on that second point there, the fact that you think there might still be a chance to get a reconciliation package done. Uh, I know that the build back better as it once was is dead. But I'm wondering at this point, when you talk with your colleagues, when you speak with your colleagues in the Senate, where is the momentum at? Could something get done this year? And what would actually be a part of that package?
9: Well, I think you saw a good example this last last week when uh, Cong- when the House passed a bill focusing on lowering prices of insulin. That's a good example of an area that actually got some bipartisan support. I think there is bipartisan support, and I think there is 50 votes for doing something related to prescription drug prices. I think you've also seen broad support for taking action on climate. And there's debate and discussion around what the specifics of that should be, but you know, from one side of the Senate Democratic Caucus to the other, I think there's agreement on taking action on that issue. So I think those are are two big issues that could make a real difference. There's others that I would like to see uh, move forward as well. But my hope is that we see as big and bold a plan as can pass. Because, you know, frankly, um, having continued debate uh, without actually getting a puck into the net doesn't help my constituents. So my hope is that we can see The House and the Senate work together and get something across the finish line. Mm -hmm.
6: Congressman, what about the expanded child tax credit? Is that just too expensive? Should we rule that out for these reconciliation priorities, or is that still alive?
9: Well, you know, it's been a priority for the New Democrat Coalition. Um, Obviously, it's been a priority for House Democrats. We've seen the enormous benefit of it in a district like mine. In in the district I represent, there's 121,000 kids who benefited from that expanded tax credit. So I'd like to see that happen. I think it's really important for reducing child poverty in our country. You've seen what it's meant for the families that have benefited from it. Most of them used it to pay for housing and to pay for food uh, and, you know, just to to keep the lights on. And so I do think that is an important priority. I'd like to see it move forward one way or the other. Uh, Time will tell whether whether that's something that's able to get 50 votes. In the United States Senate.
6: Congressman, you're also on House Appropriations, my personal favorite uh, committee. You guys actually have bills that always become law. Uh, where are the talks in the early stages? And in particular, yesterday we had Ken Calvert on, who's on the Defense Subcommittee. A lot of Republicans, including him, are, are talking about a defense spending increase. He said around 9 to 11 percent. Uh, where do you see that conversation on the defense versus non-defense debate going? And, and, and can you get off to a fast enough start to actually make progress this year?
9: I hope we get off to a, a fast start. And to the credit of Chair DeLauro and the, the chairs of each of the subcommittees, nobody's waiting around. Uh, as soon as the president's budget was put out, you saw fast action uh, to start having hearings. Uh, you know, we had, I've been in multiple hearings for the last couple of weeks going into the specifics of the president's budget, not just with regard to defense spending, but with regard to the other priorities laid out in the president's uh, president's budget. Listen, the the reality is it's important for Congress to pass its spending bills on time. Congress has not had a particularly good success rate on that over the last three decades. Um, But you know I had a meeting earlier today with some of the senior leadership of the United States Navy, and they talked about just the negative impact it has for them in terms of planning in terms of procurement uh, when Congress faces delays in passing spending bills on time. Mm-hmm. They also mm-hmm. talked about the negative impact it has for taxpayers because they see uh, increase in some of those procurement costs if they're not able to to have a full year to to plan so sure. um We're not waiting. Uh, The Appropriations Committee is doing its work, you know, for what it's worth. This last year, the House did its job early and got bills out, not just of committee, but out of the House early. Our hope and our intent and the process that we are undertaking is to is to once again do that.
5: And we'll definitely be following that process. Congressman, we only have about a minute left, but I do want to quickly ask, because you are the chair of the House Modernization Committee, had a really interesting hearing today on what might happen if there was a major attack or disaster and a majority of Congress was incapacitated. Is there something that Congress needs to do to protect itself from future disasters?
9: I think one of the clear things that came out of today's hearing was that Congress is not ready. The status quo is inadequate. And, you know, listen, no one wants to imagine a future that doesn't involve them. And and so it's it's not fun to think about these awful worst case scenarios. Um, but it's important if we want to have a functioning United States House of Representatives. I mean, you heard Mike Bishop during today's hearing testify the fact he was on the baseball field when
7: mm-hmm.
9: um, when Whip Scullis uh, was shot. Yeah. You know, and There's- his comment was, you know, that could have been far more disastrous. Yes. You Congress- know, and and it's, he said it struck him. Literally, the majority could have flipped. If it that, could have.
5: Congressman, uh, unfortunately, we do people. have to leave it there. Congressman Derek Kilmer, thank you so much for joining us. This is Bloomberg.
2: Top Two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it.
7: Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.
0: Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large size companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.
3: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on
6: Bloomberg Radio. While Congress struggles today to agree to a COVID funding bill, one area that has seen a lot of agreement on a bipartisan basis, of course, has been U.S. support for Ukraine. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins. We've got to bring in the panel Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis to talk about the latest in Russia and Ukraine. Guys, uh, the European Union's budget chief, Johannes Hahn, said today, he told reporters, Ukraine is going to need essentially a new version of the Marshall Plan to rebuild the country after Russia's invasion. Now, on Capitol Hill, we've asked a lot about this. There was the one round of military aid for Ukraine. There seems to be some buzz about potentially a second bill. Uh, There is interest, according to Lindsey Graham, about food aid. Uh, But considering all the support for military aid, what kind of position is the U.S. in, Rick Davis, uh, in terms of helping someday Ukraine rebuild after all of this?
1: Well, obviously, you know, conditions are going to dictate not only what needs to be rebuilt, and it's pretty obvious from the screens of our TVs that it's going to take a lot, but also what role is Russia going to play in that? Uh, there's no question that there'll be an effort to get war, war reparations from Russia. Uh, certainly, the use of Russian capital that's been frozen in banks all across the West. Could be applied to this. And, and I think the European and, and US governments um, uh, are going to come to the aid of the Ukrainians. But um, it's, it's all in the context of you know how does, how does Russia exit uh, the Ukraine? I, I would say that the rest of the world is going to have to pony up. I mean, the, the sanctions right now are really being limited to Europe and the United States and the rest of the world, regardless of how they feel about the war, are going to need to come to the table with resources to rebuild Ukraine.
5: You know, Rick, I want to follow on that last point about the rest of the world needing to to pitch in because there was a wild story on the terminal that the ruble has surged back to where it was before Putin invaded Ukraine. Despite all of the sanctions, all of the companies leaving, it all seems that it's toothless because foreign countries are still buying russian oil and genie i want to bring you in here i I mean obviously the, the u.s is in a position where only a small fraction of our oil came from russia but what is the u.s's role in making sure that our allies in europe and elsewhere are able to divest from russian oil
4: you know, it's very
5: difficult. The, the
4: United States, we've seen the Secretary of State, we've seen the administration focus really hard on keeping the allies together. Um, but of course, if you look just at the European example, they are a lot more dependent than the United States. So it's a bit easier for us to, you know, move away from Russian oil. We have seen movement and certainly these pictures, these horrific pictures out of Mariupol and Bucha, have, you know, intensified that movement. But you know, you look outside of Europe, we don't talk a lot about, but the latest news out of India that they're not gonna move away from it at all. This is very devastating and helps, you know, underscore what you're saying about the ruble and why it is able to bounce back to where it was pre-invasion.
6: Well, on that note, on the the difficulty of Europe pulling away from Russian oil and gas, uh, Italy, this this is news today, also on the terminal, Italy would support a ban on Russian gas imports if the European Union is united behind that, according to Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Um, Rick, does the U.S., as we noted, it's a lot easier for the U.S. to move away from Russian oil and gas, but does the U.S. have a role at this point in this European conversation Uh, Is there even an informal role for President Biden to play to try to get Europe to unite in some regard uh, on uh, Russian oil and gas?
1: Yeah, I think on retrospect, I I think we've done the easy stuff first. And it was always, oh, my God, these sanctions are really going to hurt these guys. But as the terminal story uh, indicates, the ruble is right back to where it was pre-war levels and, and, it's, and it's, you know, primarily because Russia has done a good job of continuing to sell oil and gas in their current account surplus. I mean, how could Russia have a current account surplus with all these Western nations saying they're not going to take their hydrocarbons? So uh, the U.S. can do it by friendly means uh, to try and convince Europe and other countries like India and China and others to uh, to not take the Russian gas and oil. But they can also do it through secondary sanctions. And it's been talked about quite a bit. The administration has been teasing sanctions all week. But, um, you know, uh, uh, President Zelensky went to the U.N. and said, what you're doing is not enough. And if you don't do more, you're culpable for the genocide that's happening in uh, Ukraine. And I think he's spot on with that. I think that the rest of the world's got to look at what they're doing and saying, are we really encouraging Russia's efforts in the Ukraine by by fueling their war effort?
6: Well, and on that note, Jeannie, as you touched on, uh, do you think, Jeannie, the the carnage we've seen uh, out of uh, Bucha and the accusations of war crimes, has that actually changed the state of play when it comes to European willingness to do more, whether it's sanctions, uh, pulling away from uh, oil and gas? Has that actually changed anything, Jeannie? (laughs)
4: You know, I do think it intensifies the push for these governments to move away from it. And we have heard that repeatedly, at least giving lip service to that idea. You know, the mayor of Maripol today, 5,000 dead, 210 of those children in horrific crimes, as Rick mentioned, genocide. And yet the sanctions that the administration imposed today allowed rather a carve out for energy because of the EU's dependence on Russian oil and gas. And while the administration keeps saying, rightly so we're working with the nations to reduce such imports that remains a key challenge so i do think the pictures intensify the lip service towards that end and there is a will towards that but the reality of dependence and also the politics let's just look at the difficult electoral situation that the uh, you know french president finds himself in right now those all couple the difficulty of making that move away
5: Yeah, and it it seems at this point, like, there's still a lot of support for Ukraine. There's still a lot of support for Ukrainian President Zelensky. But you are now seeing slowdowns in certain countries, including the U.S. I mean, the Senate has still not passed uh, that ban to end permanent uh, trade relations with Russia. And I'm wondering... Rick, are sort of the the politics around Ukraine changing at at a global level, is there some momentum now that's being lost as the war is continuing on?
1: Yeah, Emily, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the uh, PNTR, the Russian PNTR, permanent trade relations. This passed with overwhelming support in the House of Representatives. I mean, it was, I think only 80 voter, votes against it. And, and yet it's been stuck in the Senate. And, and that's just a function of the the leadership of the Senate, not saying we're going to prioritize this and push it through. And And granted, it's more symbolism than not. But like, why wouldn't symbolism matter at a time like this? And so uh, I think that, that the president sets the agenda. Um, I, I agree with Emma, or, uh, Jeannie. These sanctions today, I mean, like, if we waited all week for this, I mean, you know, oh, my gosh, uh, it, was, it was so disheartening that they've got no bite whatsoever. Um, the, I think the world's got to decide whether they want to continue to see Russia win this war and kill people in Ukraine for no good reason or unite around some some really tough measures that are going to hurt at home and, uh, and push them through, because it, without that, Uh, We're giving Vladimir Putin uh, too much rope.
6: Uh, stuck in the Senate definitely seems to be the, the theme of the day uh, with the COVID bill, as well as, uh, as you mentioned, good point, Emily, the, that uh, permanent normal trade relations measure that the president supports uh, and that got through the House so easily uh, has not actually passed the Senate yet. That That's something that needs congressional approval. One other uh, kind of strange issue uh, we've seen today as we talk about hopefully somewhat of a COVID wind down or uh, contrasting with that, maybe an an expectation of a future wave. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland tested positive for COVID and so has the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo. Uh, At least two members of the House have said so, Adam Schiff and Joaquin Castro. Actually, just before the show started, uh, the White House announced that the Vice President's Communication Director, Jamal Simmons, also tested positive, and we know that Garland, Raimondo, Schiff, and Castro were at the Gridiron Dinner uh, within the last week. I, you know, I, I wanted to raise this one because it's a little bit of a, a COVID wave uh, that seems to potentially. Come back to the Gridiron Dinner. I, I Emily, have you and been we, to the Gridiron Dinner? before? We should
5: just like emphasize for like all our listeners who are not in D.C. The Gridiron yes. Dinner is this. Fancy, swank, very. white tie. President usually shows up. Didn't this year? Event between lawmakers and journalists, and and yeah, it's 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 a thing. It's it's a fancy thing. And, and
6: on that note, I, you know, I I see on the on Capitol Hill very few lawmakers right now wearing masks. Even it's a it's a bipartisan thing now. It seems that within the last few weeks, maybe month or so, Democrats kind of decided. Everything's going back to normal in our daily life. Uh, Jeannie, I'm wondering if we in any way jumped the gun going back to normal, not wearing masks so much, at least people, a lot of people in the Capitol uh, having the gridiron dinner. Uh, did we go back to normal too easy, uh, too early?
4: You know, and, and it's fascinating as you mentioned. I think Jack, you have a country song there stuck in the Senate. Seems to be, you know, sort of the the watch the watch phrase of We've the got year. A chorus, but, at least. yeah, yeah. But um, and and we understand from the Gridiron Dinner at least we heard that while you were supposed to show proof of vaccination, people who were there said not everybody was checked. This is the same day the COVID prevention bill, you know, falters in the Senate. Um, you know, I do think there is a sense people feel like this thing is over. They want to move beyond it. People aren't wearing masks, and yet I can tell you sitting in new york city broadway and off-broadway has been hit very hard in the last few days by this b2 variant matthew right. broderick tested positive right. daniel craig lots of shows canceled and suspended right. so it is you know popping up and it's a huge challenge
6: not over yet thanks again to our guests chris meekins out of raymond james uh representative Dil- Derek kilmer from the state of washington and of course Jeannie sheen and rick davis with emily wilkins i'm jack fitzpatrick this is bloomberg